0: Hello, and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema.
1: My name is Thomas Simonsen Balmbra. And my name is Sverre Ogode. And today we are discussing the 2011 movie We Need to Talk About Kevin, directed by Scottish filmmaker Lynne Ramsey and co-written with her husband, Rory stewart Kneer, And it's based on a novel by Lionel Shriver. Starring Tilda Swinton... And the amazing John C. Riley, and the interesting Ezra Miller. (laughs) (laughs) And Jasper Newell and Rock Dewar. And the cinematography is by Seamus McCarvey. And music by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead and Paul Thomas Anderson movies fame.
0: Yeah, a very good soundtrack. And three of those actors play the same character, Kevin, in various ages. This is a film about a woman who it's kind of a fragmented narrative about her past. And there's something happened to do with her son that's uh, quite intense and traumatic. The the plot is kind of unfolding bit by bit. You don't really know so much what's going on. She's a travel journalist.
1: Adventure. Yeah,
0: kind of a renowned uh, travel writer, winning awards and stuff. She has a nice family with a very nice husband. That's uh, John C. Riley.
1: Um, very wholesome dad.
0: F- Franklin. Her name is Eva. They have two children. Uh, it starts off with the, the first child. And certainly seems to be some issues with this child. He is Kevin. And um,
1: we need to talk about Kevin. Yeah, we need to talk about Kevin. I it's think it's. Some issues there. It's very clearly just. But it starts off, and it's clearly something traumatic happened in regards to her son. And she's alone in the beginning of this movie. Um, yeah, well,
0: the film starts off at like a tomato festival, yeah, some, and you just see her bathing in red, and at first you're not sure what it is. It looks like it could be gore, yeah, and it turns out that it's tomatoes. There's a
1: lot of red in this movie, but yeah, it, it, something traumatic happened, and then eventually, you get clearer sense that it has to do with her son, and that she has a kind of uncomfortable relationship with her son, hmm. and you see the unfolding of the narrative from both the future and the past. Yeah, like it's a
0: fragmented uh, associative. Uh, the editing is very kind of uh, mixing things. Kind of. Mostly by association, it seems. Yeah.
1: It seems very, it's very artistically done, poetically done. Like mm. you see these bits and snatches of fragments of history mm. going back and forth, and it, it feels very like memories.
0: It yeah, kind of like how you imagine the mind works if you're going to translate to a film. It reminds me a lot of her, her later film, You Were Never Really Here.
1: Yeah, with Hoken Phoenix.
0: Yeah, Hoken. Hoken. Jack Wen. Hakwan. Uh, Jack Phoenix, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jimmy Phoenix. Uh, which have you have you seen it? I have not actually. Um, it's, it's really I know good. About
0: it but. It goes even further into this sort of style of fragmented narrative. In fact, all her films are really good. Her first film, Ratcatcher, which is kind of a, like a young kid in uh, Scotland, black and white, yeah. very beautiful and serene. And Morven Collar is her second film, and then. Kevin is the third, and uh, the fourth one is the...
1: Yeah, I think from one. her second film onwards, they're all based on novels, I think.
0: Okay. Although I
1: think she wrote the first the Ratcatcher movie.
0: Yeah, um, she did, yeah. <clears throat> she also has a really nice, uh, like a 20-minute essay film called Swimmer, which is basically just a man swimming in a river, beautifully shot. The sound design is like clippings from like news footage and... Like diverse bits. It's very sort of like poetic uh, essay. Really nice, worth checking out. She's such a great director. There are a few directors I feel like I can wholeheartedly say that all the films I've seen yeah. are just amazingly good and interesting.
1: She has a very distinct and interesting style. Yeah. I said it's sort of memory-like, the quality of this movie, but mm. it's also connected with trauma. Yeah. So I feel the disjointedness and the haphazardness of the sequencing of these different scenes and just often really short snippets of her life. Mm. They feel very closely connected to the trauma she's experienced. Mm. So it does have a memory-like quality, but it also has the disjointed quality of unwanted memories, perhaps. Like someone thinking back or or dealing with a trauma. Or maybe trying not to think back, Mm. but things keep popping up anyway. Mm. That's the general vibe, and it suits the motif of the story very well.
0: I'm unsure whether or not the um, novel works like this, but the structure of the film is very interesting. There's a lot of confusing things, things that are not clear... Until, you know, it unravels before you... Yeah, as far um, as I know,
1: the the novel is um, based on letters. Okay. So it's not quite the same effect, I Mm. think, though I haven't read it, but... very powerful in this movie
0: yeah i also haven't read the book but you get the sense that it is a very good adaptation because it's so cinematic you can see a lot of adaptations there's something a bit disjointed you revere the text and you want to bring it to fruition in the most strict sense and it doesn't quite work well this doesn't necessarily feel like it's been adapted like kubrick is one of the directors who's really good at this i mean most of his bigger films are adaptations, but they don't really feel like a movie adaptation from a book.
1: No, often they feel like improvements on the novel to the point where it seems like it, it was always meant for, yeah, for like, a movie adaptation. Oh, you never knew contrary. that it was a book. Like the, the, the famous uh, Stephen King book, The Shining, yeah. which is just so much better as a movie in my opinion, although Stephen King hated it. But it's so perfect in movie treatment. I do feel the same about this. This movie feels just perfect in Mm. its medium. Mm. Its use of the medium is very beautifully and artfully done. It really is a wonderful... gorgeous movie.
0: Yeah, it looks so good. And the sound design. uh, This Mm. is one of the earliest uh, films that Johnny Greenwood uh, scored. I think he started off with a documentary called Body Song, and then he did... There will be Blood.
1: Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson saw a Body Song and mm. really liked it, and he brought him on for There Will Be Blood, which is a fantastic movie and a, yeah. an amazing. Yeah, the soundtrack that is so good, so good, yeah. just really iconic. And and since then, he's he's only been he's been doing great great work in yeah. soundtrack.
0: Yeah, um, it's not quite as distinctive in this film. It doesn't uh, it take as much room as it does in There Will Be Blood, but it's very good, I still think.
1: Yeah, it feels more in tune with the rest of the elements and it serves the narrative very well. Mm. I don't think... Well, he could have done a more out-there soundtrack, I guess, mm. but I, I feel like he's, he's done the perfect soundtrack for yeah, this movie, Yeah, I think. Yeah.
0: And everything's so well integrated, like the editing, the cinematography and the music. It's very fluid, it's very attractive. It's very uh, fluid
1: and attractive, and there's a lot of... Uh, You know, close-ups with a sort of short focus and it has a sort of music video quality to it almost at times. Mm -hmm. Um, You see these, like Kevin's hand, like pushing uh, cereal into the table, like a lot of food stuff that's sort of...
0: I I think I know what you mean. You're talking about like moments that are like uh, catchy or good-looking moments. Is that what you mean by music video like?
1: uh Yeah, but also sort of poetic. Mm -hmm. There's just these snatches of stuff happening that Mm -hmm. looks... Looks nice and mm. maybe a bit disjointed, and also very memory like mm. and seemingly pointless. But that's because, like, there's a lot of associative elements. Yeah, like, yeah. if you experience something and then later you smell something, you might remember the experience because you smelled it at the same time. Mm. So, there's this sort of um, associative elements between what's yeah, yeah, some, yeah. sometimes there's a lot of seemingly pointless or small details that might seem insignificant, but they seem poignant in the setting.
0: Well, that's uh, part of what makes it a really good rewatch as well. And there are a lot of elements you might not pick up the first time you see it, but when you know the narrative and you. S- it's not really symbols so much as they are use of repeated imagery, yeah. which is very effective. And it reminds me of how memory works. Like you have like, a detail in the background that is strikingly similar to like, uh, one of the main imageries, but you wouldn't think of it unless you went back and saw it. For example, there's um, in the kitchen in there, the big house where she's living with her family. She has a cupboard door that's locked off with a specific type of lock. And it's not the same lock, but it looks strikingly similar to a lock that Kevin uses later as part of his drastic event
1: thing <laughs> yeah. that happens.
0: And just going back and seeing that, just this similarity of those two items, the use of repeated images. Yeah, it's very beautiful.
1: And like you said, it has a memory-like quality, But mm. but I think it has a very... It's almost like visual rhyming, mm. you know. It's kind part, of lyrical. Part, in part way. of what I mean by that, it's mm. poetic mm. and kind of musical, music video like, because it has a lot of stuff that sort of visually rhymes mm. and, and uh, is repeated, and it's very beautiful. Mm. But it also brings a real sense of cohesion to mm. the whole work, mm. like the use of the color red, mm. uh, like the the close up of the watch at at a specific time mm. where the traumatic uh, incident is connected to. Mm-hmm. It brings a sense of cohesion and a poetic dimension to the whole thing that's very beautiful and bears rewatching. actually might even grow more interesting as you re-watch the movie
0: yeah I've found that for me the first time I saw it I liked it but I didn't love it and going back and watch it again the thing that's striking about it I mean this is uh, the film is is a very subjective point of view movie and if you look at it from that perspective there's a lot of things I'm like uh, the first time I saw it I was thinking about character psychology yeah as not exactly simple, but not as well developed as I might have wanted. But when you start thinking about it from the perspective of the Tilda Swinton character, Ava, then you realize it has more to do with how memory works. Like, okay, this character acts in a certain pattern because that's how she deals with the idea of that character, not necessarily how they are in themselves.
1: Right. I think I know what you mean. It's the sort of meta-narrative that you might not think about on the first watch. Mm. I really agree with you on that point because I I think the the focus to me has sort of shifted towards Tilda Swinton's character. If you sort of see the whole story unfolding from sort of focusing on her and her experiences, it does bring a things more into focus i think in my opinion kevin isn't really that interesting a character he's a bit of a sort of stereotype almost of well, a psychopath
0: <laughs> the thing is that the film almost presents him like a omen style antichrist right. demon
1: child it's totally an omen child um, like really out to just psychologically torment his mother
0: and it seems simplistic i mean you have um, him in various ages as a toddler as a, a young child and as a um, teenager to begin with, with a young child, you might get the sense that it's, it's just like a, a stereotype. But the closer you look at it, and uh, we can talk about it later, but towards the end scene, I feel like it shows that it's more her experience. And um, I guess we could just lay out the, the basic plot elements so we just don't have to circle around it. Yeah, like, sure. It's a spoiler, but <laughs> Kevin does a, a school shooting situation with his classmates. He uses a bow and arrow and kills and maims several of his classmates. And uh, the Tilda Swinton character, Ava, is in the aftermath dealing with that. And her memory is going back and thinking about her period with her family and that small child. Yeah. And As a young
1: parent and, and watching yeah. him grow up. At the same time, it's intercut with these moments of her dealing with her neighbors and her like local communities. Yeah, well,
0: yeah, set in the, let's say, contemporary time space right. where she's living on her own in a house by herself and everyone seems to hate her so much. We don't know why at this point in the film, Uh, but there's a lot of aggression towards her and she's uh, really out of sorts. The narrative shifts back and forth through that and the plot is kind of simple, but it's told in a very um, lyrical style that makes it very engaging structurally, I think. I think
1: without the style, it could easily have been a much cruder movie. And there are some moments which in a more poorly put together movie... With a similar script, would be kind of bad. I'm thinking in particular of the scene where he goes out to dinner with his mom, because this is Does a she,
0: situation where he's like he's 16 or something, yeah. and uh, she asks him because he has a birthday and she involves uh, in sort of a mother son date situation. Yeah, and he's been so offensive to this point that it's almost surprising that he wants to join her on that.
1: Yeah, and then they're eating dinner, or he's she's eating dinner and he's just playing with his food. He has this rant about, this is when you're going to ask me about my girlfriend. And so he has like, these predictions, mm. and it just seems like I don't buy it at all. It's such a movie moment, if you know what I mean. Mm. It feels very unnatural. It makes more sense if you view it from her character's point of view and memory, but as like natural dialogue, I think it's extremely, extremely artificial. Yeah,
0: there is something very artificial about the Kevin character. As I said, he's almost like an antichrist. And always devilish in his scheming. Yeah, he has this
1: malevolent uh, look on his face all the time. He's in the know of some dark scheme.
0: (laughs) This is interesting, I think. I mean, if you watch the film as a parent, I'm not a parent, but I think a lot of the things that you might initially find to be like troubling behavior for him... As a parent, you'd see that that's how all kids are. Like he, he messes up with paint in a room. Uh, he shits himself uh, and he, he's kind of like annoying and angry. But she doesn't really know how to deal with it. She doesn't no. have the tools. And she's kind of a bit of a cold person, an ambitious person. Yeah. and There's
1: I, a lot of her reflected in Kevin.
0: Yeah, they're very similar. They uses a lot of imagery where they mirror Kevin and uh, right. Eva.
1: But you're right. There's a lot of behavior that's, well, maybe not necessarily super normal, but at least quite common and does happen. And she always interprets it in the worst possible way instead Mm. of sort of dealing with it. Like, there's a lot of red flags. Mm. Like, Kevin does exhibit a lot of traits and behaviors that normally would probably be considered related to maybe child abuse and stuff like that. Mm. I've worked with children some before, and these kinds of behaviors are usually a sign of something going on at home. It's not usually just Sue Gueneres or out of the blue. Mm. Like this movie sort of implies Mm. there's this sort of demonic, uh, otherworldly presence to Kevin. Mm. But in real life, I think you would be able to deal with it much more if you you sort of viewed it from a more um, balanced point of view. Yeah. She seems always to take to read something dark into it.
0: There is a scene where she, quite early on, where she says to baby Kevin, she says, I didn't really want to have you anyway. Mummy would have been much happier without you. Right. And he's probably at the age where he doesn't actually understand so much what she's saying. But her husband, uh, Franklin, hears that sentence and yeah. he's disappointed.
1: Like maybe he doesn't quite understand it, but mm. there's an energy there. <laughs> That's, Kevin is experiencing some weird shit growing up. And I think because initially just, yeah. she, she feels very disconnected from the baby, right? Yeah. From very early on, he cries a lot. Yeah. And a lot of mothers do find that, you know, motherhood is, is so sort of romanticized mm-hmm. in this day and age that a lot of mothers feel, as far as I understand, quite disconnected from the whole experience when they find that they have given birth, but they don't feel this like magical bond yeah. necessarily to their baby. Mm. And a lot of mothers do have this postpartum depression where they can feel very disconnected to their child. Tilda Swinton does really beautifully portray this in this movie, but I think from that point on, like she never really gets over that.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of things that are implied in this movie about her that aren't said explicitly, which is... <laughs> one of the things I find really interesting about this film is a lot of the things it doesn't say as well as the things that it does say, which fits very well into the idea of a, like a subjective narrative. I've seen some reviews and I I can easily understand people who also just see the film as this is a bad mother and that leads to a devil child who goes out and kills. We can blame blame the mother. And some of the characters in the movie, they also act like that. They other mothers who've lost their kids, she meets them at the street, they punch her in her face. And she's, she's not expecting it at all, really. It's quite interesting, those scenes.
1: I think in general there are a lot of scenes in this movie which can seem rather over the top. Like the reaction she's getting... Like in these this well, day and age, most people would view her as a victim, right? Her son being a school shooter doesn't make her a bad person.
0: Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, people are complicated. I mean, not all of them. Uh, a fellow student of her son rolls up to her in a wheelchair at some point and says, "How are you doing? Uh, I'm fine. I'm okay. Uh, and how is your life?" He's not attacking her. He is kind of showing off that he's he's hurt and that sort of stuff. But it's not um, necessarily a, an act of aggression. I think. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of subtleties but they're disguised through a subjective narrative which makes them difficult. I mean, this film is very well acted. Like, um, Tilda Swinton is great.
1: The performances uh, yeah, all around are yeah, great. Like, yeah. the ensemble, uh, John C. Riley's is great. Yeah. Ezra Miller is awesome. Um, yeah. It's just really...
0: Uh, they do a really good job. John C. Riley in this film is kind of... Just this nice guy, the nice dad that Kevin is always, you know, helping out if he wants and while he's rejecting his mother. And it's... He's seemingly
1: being duped all the time. Like he's seemingly just uh, sort of dumb and realizing what's going on. And
0: that might seem simplistic, but I think there's an underlying tendency. I mean, you can think of it as her remembering him as kind of simplistic, but you can easily read between the lines that he's not really as present. I mean, he's not taking her seriously. And he doesn't seem to be taking Kevin seriously either. There's a lot of these nice nuances. You have this scene with the Ezra Miller version of Kevin, the 16-year-old.
1: The latest version.
0: Yeah. This is a really nice scene with with his uh, young sister in the kitchen. He comes into the room and she screams like, Oh, Kevin, my best friend, be my friend. He he kind of brushes her off a bit and he says, "Uh, Go away, silly. Go get me a drink. And the language he uses towards his sister is very interesting, I find, because it's kind of accepting. At the same time, it uses derogatory language. So he puts her down and gets her to do stuff for him. And you can just sense that if this girl were to grow up and be a woman, she'd have so many issues with yeah. her own insecurities right. and being, you know, related to in this manner. Of course, she doesn't grow up, but both she and her dad get murdered by, by bow and he Yeah.
1: It's interesting what you're saying about how Tilda Swinton's character, Ava, yeah. views her husband as sort of this dumb oaf in, from her perspective in mm. sort of memory of him, mm. maybe, her viewpoint. Mm. But I would point out that that's sort of, if you accept that meta-narrative of it all being through her eyes, because I think you can absolutely view this movie from a more straightforward perspective. You can, yeah. yeah. And it sort of depends on how you approach it, how well it works, mm. I think. Because if you just view it as a straight story, then a lot of the things that happen are a bit sort of Well, that was simple. my
0: mistake first time I saw it, I feel.
1: Yeah, like, but I'm not sure it's a mistake, though. Like You're getting less out of the movies so in that sense. <laughs> yeah, you're getting less out of the movie, but sort of isn't that on the movie maker to sort of make that more obvious? You could argue that. Anyway, I'm not saying that <clears throat> it's a bad movie because you can view it from a simplistic I, point of view, but I do think that you have to go into that mode, that meta-narrative mode, where you sort of view it more from Tilda Swint's perspective to really Mm. get the most out of the story.
0: Initially, it's not as explicitly clear that it's subjective. I mean, there's a lot of things that point towards it, the editing, uh, the way it goes back and forth, and the use of repeated imagery. But it doesn't necessarily say very clearly, like some movies may, that uh, this is her perspective and everything is to be understood from how she sees it. Right, but, it's but,
1: not implicit that it's an unreliable narrator. Well, because that's one of the things that the
0: author of the book, Lionel Shriver, was worried about when it was going to get adapted, that it would communicate clearly the unreliable narrator. And um, I like the way he does it, but it, it can be a bit deceiving, I think.
1: Right, because it's not clear that it is unreliable. Well, And I, I yeah. assume, I assume he, he was satisfied with that because it's really sort of ambivalent.
0: Yeah, that ambivalence, I like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes, I agree. I, In general, I like when movies go into that ambivalent territory where you can view it from several levels, several angles, and them all being valid, but nonetheless different mm. uh, and can bring you different sort of results on how you... Well, it can give you different th- things on different viewings depending on how you sort of...
0: It can enrich approach the experience. It. Yeah, it yeah. can
1: enrich the experience, right? I like that. I do think... It's not a perfect movie. If I would point to any flaws, I would Mm. point to that it might be a bit too intelligent in the way it goes about that stuff, right? Because you can read it as being Mm. quite simple. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure how you'd improve that. Actually,
0: I think this is one of the ways that I was never really here. Her film that she made after this Mm. is a bit better. The way it more clearly presents itself as a subjecting narrative using the same sort of um, fragmented editing and memory-based style. I don't feel it's faulty necessarily in Kevin, but it's sharpened more for that project.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's a good way to put it. I don't think it's a fault necessarily, but it could be improved upon maybe, mm -hmm. right? I do find the whole core of this story incredibly fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's something that has been fascinating me for a long time. Like, How do you deal with family members being psychotic or lacking empathy or being sociopathic? There's this very interesting podcast called Happy Face, which is reporter, I think, and the daughter of a serial killer Okay, that make this podcast about sort of going through the life of her father, talking to the victims, going through this process of understanding what it is to be closely, familiarly, genetically connected to and socially, of course, mm-hmm. connected to a psychopath, like a real monster.
0: Oh, that sounds very interesting.
1: It is incredibly interesting, and there's a lot of commonalities, actually, between what is sort of explored in that podcast and this movie. (laughs) There is this sense, this sort of dread that you are inexplicably linked, like you can never break free from the chains of biology. You can sort of read that into Tilda Swinton's performance there, that she feels connected to Kevin. Mm-hmm. And so in a way she feels guilty by association or guilty by biology almost, mm-hmm. that it's an evil part of her mm. or that she also has these these things inside her. And that's, it's really sad. And in, in the podcast, Happy Face, it's just incredibly sad, but also sort of eye-opening to hear this woman who's been through this horrible experience and by the way, her experience is quite similar to what goes on in this movie because there's a lot of seemingly normal things mm. that in retrospect are just obviously psychopathic. Mm. Like her father tries to kill them at several points, but it seems sort of random, like he, he leaves out bear bait, and leaves them alone in the, a cabin or whatever, mm. and he wants to try to get them killed, right? At the time, it just seemed like maybe a weird accident or something, mm. but in retrospect, it's yeah, incredibly yeah, yeah. weird. See it. so, and he also has this sense of normalcy like Kevin does like he he will act normal towards his father right Kevin mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 uh, her father would also like let me just get their names
0: mm-hmm.
1: right so the the serial killer's name is Keith Hunter Jesperson and his daughter is Melissa G Moore and she talks about Jesperson's sort of seemingly normal moments. And yet through, there's only this thin veneer of normalcy above this clearly psychopathic mentality. Like he would bring gifts home on trips and stuff, but the moment later he would just be super violent or super erratic Mm. or super Mm. incredibly, like psychologically. Like he never hurt her physically, but he hurt her psychologically so much. Like this psychological game of power, it rings very true to what goes on in this movie.
0: Yeah, 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 that's true, yeah.
1: And to a lot of sociopaths and psychopaths, they it's not necessarily about killing or like, these are just extraneous things that, that are a, sort of a, a result of power, sort of power games, basically.
0: But the, the daughter in this podcast, yeah, does she feel there's a lot of connection between her and her father? And yeah, her... she
1: does. She does see a lot of common traits. But ultimately, and through this podcast, it's incredibly obvious that she is incredibly empathetic mm, and yeah. just an incredibly good and incredibly strong person for getting through it. And mm. it's incredibly actually cathartic to hear about her sort of healing journey through sort of facing his victims and really, you know, looking at the whole legacy of that. Yeah. Because ultimately you are sort of the sum of your actions. You aren't your past. You aren't your family. Like you are what you do in a sense.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. And in this film, as you said, Tilda Swinton and, uh, Ezra Miller, they're, they're very similar. They don't necessarily look like they're in family, but they both have... They s- have this s- sort of...
1: Slim build, c- ...coolness and, about them. Yeah, yeah. This sort of vaguely elephant or otherworldly yeah. quality to them that makes them... Their relation in this movie seems very obvious and the casting is superb, I would yeah, say. it's great. And they embody that just by you know looking the way they do. But also, and then, and then you have through, the brilliant performance yeah. on top of that. So, it,
0: but also through the situations that are presented, uh, there's this really nice scene uh, from um, as, as we talked about before. The uh, mother and son date. They first they go out uh, mini golfing. Yeah. And um, this is a really revealing scene for the Eva character. I find where she's standing next to Kevin and they're chatting feels more like a normal situation that you might have seen them in and they're standing by the counter doing the mini golf stuff and talking about some other people there and she's saying commenting like on the weight I mean you don't get like that just by yeah Genetics.
1: No, she's talking yeah. shit about some overweight people. And at that point, you, s- you really see like the connection between them. On that.
0: And the way they relate back and forth in that situation where he says, Mom, that's uh, really harsh. And she says, yeah, you want to talk. And then he says, I wonder where I got that from. You get a feeling of the dynamic there. And she's kind of surprised by that comment. And you can feel like it, it reveals a lot about how... She relates to people, which isn't so clear. A lot of the time through the film, she's the recipient of bad behavior. Yeah. And in this case, you see more of her as an agent towards others.
1: Yeah, um, I think there's a really illuminating scene uh, where she's meeting Kevin um, in the jail. Yeah. Uh, this is after the whole, the whole school is shooting. Is the last scene uh, Yeah, well, it is the last scene, but it's also intercut throughout the movie. Yeah. And Kevin talks about... He's uh, fingering a scar on his arm. And he mm. says, do you remember how I got this scar? Mm-hmm. And he says, that was the only honest thing he ever did to me. <laughs> yeah. And the scene he's referring to, or the moment he's referring to is, Eva is trying to teach him numbers. And he's playing these mind games with her. Yeah. He pretends he doesn't know anything, and then he counts up to 60 or something. And it's obviously mm. he knows his numbers. Yeah, he's an intelligent boy. Yeah, he's very intelligent, right? And then he shits his pants, just to sort of get on her nerves, apparently. And he's like five, mm. right? And he's still wearing diapers, yeah. and so she has to change him. And she's getting really, really annoyed. And then after having changed him, and she's like, "You're enjoying this, aren't you?" And then uh, he sort of scampers off and looks back towards her and shifts mm. his pants again. Yeah, and yeah. At that yeah. point, she gets really pissed off and she throws him into something. And yeah, she
0: lifts him up and throws him in the wall. Or something. Yeah,
1: and he and he breaks his arm yeah. and he gets his scar mm. eventually. And he lies to his father about it. Yeah afterwards. He
0: defends her when the father sees, oh, what's happened? Because they've been to the doctors, they come back. And then he, he runs in before her because she's kind of in trepidation, doesn't quite know how to explain herself. Right. But she doesn't have to because the young Kevin just runs to her father and says, oh, I had an accident
1: and uh, mom took me to do the doctors. Yeah. So that feels a bit schemy. It does. <laughs> and I think you, you get the sense that Kevin feels this sort of personal connection to her on that mm. level that she's the only one in the family with those dark tendencies because mm. the father and the daughter john c Riley, and
0: they're quite warm and, and nice and uh, eva seems to have quite a, a warm relationship to the daughter yeah, She it seems very wholesome and natural yeah unproblematic mm. because that again
1: sort of blissfully ignorant almost yeah but at the same time she she doesn't feel like she doesn't feel quite so like she does feel more like kevin sort of like a halfway point between kevin and the father and daughter she feels normal but she does have these uh, more morose and antisocial tendencies it does seem like.
0: Well, I mean she's a cold and reserved and ambitious person. Yeah. But she's not a violent person and she often reaches out to Kevin for example. Her intentions aren't malicious. I feel like she doesn't really have the tools to deal with a lot of the things like there's so many situations I feel like I wish she would just ask her young son how are you feeling, why are you angry? What could I do to help you? Or, or that sort of stuff. Right. Or? She feels a bit
1: emotionally stunted herself and unable to. She doesn't have the toolbox to deal with it. Yeah. She really tries her best she tries to love him she tries to tell him she loves him she she tries to be nice she tries to do stuff Mm. but it's all quite superficial she never Mm. really tackles or deals with the problem and
0: she deals very badly with the toddler crying all the time she can't sleep and she gets like passive aggressive about it
1: yeah and it's that's sort of emblematic of her whole relationship with kevin i think as a parent. Mm. And, of course, it really ties into the title of the movie. We need to talk about Kevin. Which they never do. (laughs) They never do, of course. And they really should have talked about Kevin. They really should have had that conversation. They should have, you know, gone deeper into the source of these problems because, as we discussed earlier, these types of behaviors... There's been research done on this sort of mm. stuff. And as far as I know, if you deal with antisocial behavior before kids are turning into teenagers mm. and adults, there's a really good percentage that they will be a lot more normal mm. or sort of reintegrated into society.
0: Yeah, and there's something about teaching them empathy if it's not been incorporated in their personality. Right, if, from you, if you haven't
1: really dealt with the whole empathy mm. issue until you're like 20, then usually <laughs> it's too late, right? Mm. But research has shown that it's possible... Mm. To deal with these issues at least in a larger degree yeah. if you tackle it sooner sooner the better right and it's never really dealt with here.
0: yeah yeah i really feel that they should have had a good family therapist where yeah right. all the uh, different <laughs> the father and the mother and the son and the daughter yeah, there's a lot of issues there, there.
1: Should have had a, a good, talented uh, family therapist, I think would have gone a long way to dealing with all the shit that yeah. goes down in this Because, I
0: mean, there's a lot of things that are likable about Kevin as well. I mean, he's obviously very intelligent. and Quite charming. Uh, yeah, very charming and, um, you know, socially aware. He understands these dynamics. Although in the film you often see him uh, using them in a devious manner, you could easily imagine like a more empathetic version of Kevin being really good at
1: dealing with people and... Uh, yeah, um, it does also feed into the sort of stereotype about uh, sociopaths mm. that they are often very charming and persuasive. Mm. As far as I know, that's a bit of a myth. Oh, yeah? It does happen. But the fact is that most people with uh, antisocial behavior problems are really often way deep in the criminal system and do often do horrible shit and and can't deal with their issues. And and they're often not able to function on a higher level like people like, say, Ted Bundy. Hmm. So they are sort of more like outliers, I think.
0: Actually, I have a nice quote related to this from the Guardian review of this film by Peter Bradshaw. And he said, um, what American psycho was to consumerism, we need to talk about, Kevin, is both to sexism and feminism. A brilliantly extreme parable, operatically pessimistic.
1: (laughs) It's quite well written. Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand the essence of what he means by feminism in this context.
0: Well, I guess he's talking about the problematic role of a mother where you're both demonized for your son's fault because it would never happen if he had a good mother. That's a typical, like, a narrative. Right. And, like, the complexity of being a cold woman. There's a lot of stereotypes about what is and isn't feminine and what women should and shouldn't be. It's a lot stricter than it is for men.
1: Right. I really like that take on this movie. I think that really cuts to the core. I really grasp at what's the essence of this, what's good about this movie. Because it is about how I view it as really valuable. Is It gives people, people like me, who might not usually get that sort of a, a glimpse into what it's like as a mother and mm. what it's like mm. to deal with a lot of these things that aren't really discussed very openly yeah
0: it's not one of the let's say uh, usual narratives that's presented
1: i mean there are good examples but you typically you have to look for them right i wanted to just just touch upon the whole school shooting phenomenon because it's an interesting uh, theme to to tackle like i just mentioned i don't think that's really the core of what this movie is about it's Mm. not really about school shootings it's Mm. more about the experience of having a psychopath in your family mm-hmm. in a sense but or someone who does a traumatic thing towards others so. yeah of course there's another famous movie about school shootings elephant which i've always hated i really despise the movie and
0: gus van Sand. i haven't seen it actually i'm curious to see it but um, yeah
1: I, I i find his work incredibly i don't know maybe i'm just prejudiced against it well he
0: has some good movies has to be said
1: yes it's especially this movie. Especially this movie, I find incredibly vapid and okay. <laughs> uh, uninteresting in dealing with issues. Yeah. It's just incredibly apathetic. And I guess that's sort of the point too, but...
0: Well, it's roundabout from the same time. It wasn't so a long time after the uh, Columbine school No, no, movie. it wasn't.
1: It was from like 2004 or something. Mm. I don't know. That just felt like, to me, it felt very lazy. That's... Okay. Probably what I liked the least about it. And it was just incredibly boring. Oh yeah. But, <laughs> and this movie is everything but boring. It's yeah. incredibly engaging throughout the entire movie. It's mm. so intense mm. and so so well put together. There's this other series, a pretty recent series. I think it was put together by Netflix or whatever, but it it's this sw- Swedish. TV show called quicksand in English. Största oh yeah. uh, in Swedish. And it deals with basically the same theme. It deals with school shooting and the frame narrative is a lot like we need to talk about Kevin because it deals with the aftermath. First, well, first you sort of see what goes on after and you're not quite sure what's happened. Mm. And you just see the reactions people Mm. have to the main character. And you you don't really know what's going on. It's a lot like we need to talk about Kevin in that aspect. And then it unravels more and more. You see more of the past and the future sort of melt together and you understand what happens. And then it sort of culminates in the school shooting. Mm. A lot like we need to talk about Kevin. Of course, this is done in the series, so it's done over multiple hours and a lot longer sort of deals with it. But... It's interesting because I think both Elephant, We Need to Talk About Kevin, and this quicksand series all sort of tiptoe around the subject Mm. almost. It's Mm. almost like they want to deal with everything but the subject. Mm. And Mm. I think that's interesting Mm. in sort of thinking about how school shootings and mass shootings in general in America and also in Europe
0: now Mm -hmm.
1: and all over the world actually as a sort of growing phenomenon and more and more common we just seem unable to sort of deal with it in any meaningful way and it's often so painful and traumatic that we really don't want to we have a hard time grasping it Hmm. so I I think that even though we're trying to grasp at it in these different media we still sort of tiptoe around it and we still have a hard time dealing with Hmm. it even when we try to look at it straight on we sort of had to go around it Hmm. I find that incredibly fascinating
0: well uh the way that Lynne Ramsey deals with violence in this film is all indirect. You don't actually see violence happening. You see the results of violence happening. And that's very similar to the um, uh, next one she did, yeah. where she contextualizes it and you see the results. You can see dead bodies, but you don't see the violence happening towards the bodies, for example. Right. And I think that's very interesting because... A lot of people feel an imperative to show the violence itself as an exciting and dangerous or um, tense situation. Like it's easy to make good action and engaging film through this kind of action. But going around it makes it a lot more interesting in a way, I think.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's sort of the two diametrically opposed, if you will, sort of ways of, Mm. of dealing with violence Often, especially in Hollywood cinema, it's often not glamorized, but stylized yeah. very, very heavily.
0: Well, often uh, glamorized, but typically always, anyway, stylized.
1: Right. But, but you know, I think maybe my favorite approach mm. to it is the way it was done in um, Come and See. Oh, yeah. Because you show it, but it's not glamorized. Yeah. And I love that approach because in We Need to Talk About Kevin, it is sort of stylized and sort of glamorized mm. in a way. It, it is. As it is an elephant, and mm. as it is sort of in quicksand, and too, the images are beautiful. Yeah, it's really beautifully done. And you and see, I, like the
0: father and the uh, daughter, they're shot with an arrow in the back in the yeah, backyard. Yeah, the lighting and, it's, and everything. It's like a tasteful
1: artistic. shot. And you can deal with it a lot of ways. Like there's mm. no clear, like there's no answer. Yeah. In answer in art, mm. you you just do it in different ways, mm. and, and depending on what you want to say and what you want to get out of it. But I think well, it's interesting in the context mm. of mass shootings because. Not showing it almost in a way glamorizes it. I think, especially if you do it super artistically. Like I think all things I've seen dealing with mass shootings in media has been quite artistically and sort of glamorizing. Do you,
0: you really think this glamorizes
1: it? No, or? I think this is among those three that we've just talked about. Mm. I think is the one that least glamorizes it. But you gotta agree, it looks really cool.
0: Yeah, it looks very
1: tasty. Like him with the with the bow and arrow, yeah. and it's just it's really mm. slick. And, mm. and the lighting and the framing it, mm. and it looks really good like he is not portrayed as a good person no. but he's he's a beautiful man and he's intelligent mm. and he's like it's sort of glamorized well
0: it's very competent I mean you can talk about it uh, I mean you said uh, come and see but I thought you were going to say Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance because there which is the film we talk about uh, another episode because there you have more like clumsy violence or like day-to-day violence where it's a bit accidental and uh, right. a bit and, random. And you
1: have the same in free will. I think a yeah. lot of good unpleasant movies have mm. a way of approaching the subject in a way that's quite direct and makes you uncomfortable. And I think that's a really mature way of going about it mm. in a movie. So so yeah, like all, all those mm. are, things are relevant and I'm not saying it's a bad choice here. Like, if you did it another way, it would sort of be another movie.
0: I, I can easily see you just taking the still from the this film with John C. Riley with his arrow in his back and putting it on a wall and almost fetishizing it. Yeah, because it looks so nicely, uh, so nicely lit with the sprinklers and uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: and the lawn. It's really beautiful. Yeah.
0: That scene is really nice. Yeah, she's just come home from the school shooting scene. And she doesn't know they're dead yet. She just comes home and everything's really quiet. And she just sees the see-through curtains leading out into the backyard. Ghostly, like just going back and forth. Mm. And you can tell that there's something really wrong. And you can hear the sprinklers going back and forth. And the way it shows that it's really beautiful and ghostly and and, uh, uh, haunting, really. Right. Almost like a horror film. uh, Yeah.
1: I do think it's valuable to think about these things. Like mm. even the choice to make it archery instead of guns. It's so elegant and yeah. sort of quiet yeah. and, and... A so bit unrealistic, probably. A bit but unrealistic, uh, yeah. In fact, it looks so the nice. whole thing is just this choreographed mm. sort of beautiful symphony of destruction. Mm. And but, you know, actually, I think in terms of... Well, I don't
0: know. I mean, it was written by this uh, Lionel Shriver guy. I don't know how it functions in the book. But in the film, <laughs> the, the irony of it being archery... Is that um, Kevin gets interested in it in one of the few scenes we see where he's open to his mother? She's yeah, him reading and to him. are bonding over this yeah, book. The bonding. He, she's reading Robin Hood, and for once, he's like really interested in her and open to her. And instead rejecting the father. He comes in and he says, uh, what's going on here? And then Kevin says, go away, dad. Yeah, so the normal
1: <laughs> dynamics put on his yeah, head.
0: Yeah, it's split around and then and she's kind of surprised. Oh, oh, he's he likes me. That's nice. But it's kind of devious because he's really into the book. And then from that point, he starts to practice archery and gets really good at it. And you yeah. see him in the different uh, age. Uh,
1: I think thematically, that's really interesting mm. because it's, it sort of shows the connection between the mother mm. and his violent impulses. Yeah. And sort of that, it not necessarily a, di- like directly yeah. symbolic or anything, but it's, it's sort of, it, it rhymes, you know. Yeah. It, and, it, and it
0: puts kind of like an element of guilt onto her because right. she introduced him to, I mean, it wouldn't have worked with, well, I mean, I suppose it could have worked with guns, but it would have been a different thing. Uh, like you could have
1: had like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you have a scene like, actually afterwards when she's leaving alone and she's sort of making Kevin's room like uh, spick and span for his eventual return. Yeah. And she still has that uh, Robin Hood book yeah. on a shelf. Yeah, it's like, maybe you should throw that away. Like, I mean, it maybe means not, something to her. Yeah maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe it means something to her, but like after he's mm. killed a bunch of people with a yeah. bow and arrow, maybe, maybe leave the Robin Hood book, mm. you know, bring it to goodwill or, or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so don't yeah, keep it on his shelf.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah,
1: uh, And it's sort of simple again, because it's like, it's the only thing he shows any interest for. Mm. So. But then
0: again, yeah, that's where it again feels more subjective to me, where it's like, what kind of things are she, is she remembering? If I'm trying to deconstruct the film, putting it in like a, a space, a specific time when everything's going on, I imagine it like the end scene where she goes to visit Kevin yeah. at the prison. She goes several times, but the end is the last time. And it's almost from that point of view of who she is then and there that everything else in the movie is relating to like her subjective memory or dealing with Kevin and Franklin and uh, her daughter yeah it's like the later version of tilda swinton relating to all these memories in in different ways yeah almost like uh, her
1: own like personal mythology yeah yeah. Like the, the version she's been constructing and reconstructing in her head mm. throughout the years. And it's sort of come more simplistic and symbolic than it probably mm. was at the time.
0: And, and that's kind of how memory works, isn't it? I mean, when you think about something, there's uh, some brain research that says that like every time you think about a memory, every time you remember something, you're reconstructing the memory. Oh, yeah. The more you go back and mm. reconstruct the memory, it kind of changes. It becomes more subjective, and yeah, it's the not like details a, are less clear. It's not like a
1: video recording. It's more like a couple of uh, like keywords, and then you sort of reconstruct the yeah. the scene from a script or something.
0: So remembering it many years later, a lot of the details can be very different. You can associate a different color, yeah, and especially if or, it's
1: something that you sort of recreated and recreated. Mm. You can have very specific. Mm like um, memories of something that isn't true. There is, there is some very interesting research on this. Yeah, court
0: cases where someone's uh, for years been put in prison for a crime they didn't do yeah. and they get genetic proof years later that it wasn't them, but they the witness was so sure.
1: It was the exact face. Right, um, and eyewitness testimony is some yeah. of the most unreliable evidence you can get in a trial though.
0: But this scene with when she meets him at the very end, I find also that to be one of the more revealing scenes. Because this is the only time you actually see Kevin vulnerable and yeah. open. Because she goes to him and they start a conversation and it's slightly more candid. She asks if he, does he understand why he's done these things? What's going on with him? And he says, uh, for the first time in my life, I feel like,
1: I don't know. I don't have any answers. Well, he says, I thought I knew. Yeah. I, thought Im- I knew. Implying he, he doesn't really know now. And yeah. I think that scene, especially now viewing it from more of Ava's perspective Mm. and through her own mythologizing of the events, I think that's incredibly poignant and and beautifully done because it's sort of the sort of veil of him being this perfect sadistic Mm. uh, psychopath that only schemes and only wants to do evil Mm. sort of falls apart a bit. And at the same time, that's sort of also a comment on maybe her understanding of him as this perfect sociopath and her whole sort of recreation of the things that happened in this simplistic sort of way is also sort of falls apart in a way.
0: Yeah, I feel like she's maybe a way to explain it, what he did. She almost demonizes him into this omen child creature.
1: Right, that's easier to understand.
0: Yeah, and then here he's actually vulnerable and he's, the acting is a lot more subtle from uh, Ezra Miller at this point brilliant uh, and it's very poignant and you feel like this is probably more the real Kevin that you're seeing and yeah. not just the memory of Kevin that she's reconstructing yeah. right
1: but it's also like it doesn't make him not a sociopath or whatever but it doesn't necessarily imply that he is only a sociopath like I think a lot of people view it a bit too simplistically and also there's this idea that sociopaths don't have feelings mm. they do have feelings they are definitely able to feel very strongly and especially about themselves yeah but as far as I know they're also able to empathize they just choose not to or often don't in a lot of cases now of course there are a lot of variables and a lot of
0: just different. Well, I mean, choosing it is maybe a difficult word in this context. Yeah, it's not as if they have a red button and a green button, and they.
1: No, I, I seem to recall reading some research that <laughs> it's kind of annoying to reference all this research <laughs> yeah. without citations. But this yeah. is sort of a laid-back podcast. We're not going to yeah. like. It's not an academic discussion well, by any not means. Scientific. Mm. So, but I remember reading some research that sociopaths actually can make choices regarding how they empathize. Yeah. And often they make the choice not to. But maybe they have this ability to choose, whereas normal people either empathize or don't. Right? Like it's Is the not
0: idea that they're choose. more disconnected in a way. Yeah, you know?
1: absolutely. And and I think you can read that into this final scene. Like he, mm. he maybe chooses to empathize. Maybe he just feels strongly about his own plight. Maybe he's not actually a 100% sociopath. And maybe he's just had this weird upbringing. And maybe he could have become a better person. Like there's a lot of... <laughs> ifs Mm, in this last scene yeah
0: i I feel that he's definitely in retrospect dealing with it Mm. he's it looks as if he's been thinking about his own choices and is
1: unsure about them
0: yeah he becomes more complex in a way
1: yeah i like it because it comes as sort of surprise to Mm. eva yeah it does yeah it comes sort of out of the blue and, and that sort of dispels the whole myth that he's just this perfect killer and I like that the ending is very strong in this movie and makes the whole movie better for it, which is all you can ask for in a, in an ending that it improves the movie it does absolutely it does I love this movie, I think it's a great movie it's really it's, it's good, not yeah. a flawless movie, but it's the flaws it has sort of makes it almost mm. stronger i mm. I like it because it's dynamic, yeah, you know,
0: and I also like that the all these Details that he uses, like we haven't really spoken about the so much about Tilda Swinton's character in like more or less the present where she's she's got a uh, she's got a new job. Yeah. It's not a fancy job.
1: <laughs> it's the travel uh, agency.
0: Yeah, where she's. Uh, At first you just see her applying for the job and uh, this woman, she's looking over her credentials, like the statement from her past. And he just says, I don't really care what you've done as long as you can type or whatever. Mm. And uh, (laughs) I really like this character. She has these really long painted nails and she's tapping the paper. And she's kind of like, she really doesn't give a shit. She's got her own thing. Yeah. And as long as this person does the job. I kind of like her. Yeah. <laughs> she's funny. She's yeah. relaxed. Um,
1: th- and later at the at the party, she's like, uh, she's like dancing. And, like, yeah. she she seems like a very genuine, like, uh, person. Yeah, yeah. In this movie, like, this complex hmm. sort of uh, psychological, like, and you have this sort of almost comical but very like human character. Yeah, she's she's like
0: a normal person,
1: very yeah. much. And the coworkers are all interesting, like the the sleazy, like the guy who sort of tries to put his moves on her. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's he at once the first so time horrible. you see
1: him, he seems just a bit off. Yeah,
0: and then he's helping her with a computer program at some point, and he's just almost a bit too yeah. familiar. Yeah. He doesn't do anything explicitly, but then later on, at like the touches dance, her shoulder a
1: bit more. Like he, yes. he's a bit. Like too intimate.
0: Yeah, and then later on, there, there's this dance party where she probably doesn't go out to much social events at this point, and she's sitting down and looking at the others dancing, and then he goes over to her and says, "Would you like to dance?" And it feels like she's just she's not comfortable with it. Uh, she just says, "Oh no, I, I don't like
1: to dance." Yeah, but it's a scene that happens in all parties. Yeah, so people. Yeah, don't want I mean, is.
0: some people just don't, and yeah. that's and that's fine. Yeah. But then he like switches into this shitty also and he just says yeah you think anyone would uh, want to dance with you other than me yeah, after he's, what you've he's, done
1: there's like where do you get off you stuck up bitch yeah he just you think anybody's gonna want you now oh, after
0: this yeah and he just becomes this really ugly guy mm. and uh, all your feelings about him as a a creep just come to fruition.
1: fish. Yeah, they're validated. <laughs> yeah, and Yeah. <laughs> you instantly dislike this guy. Yeah,
0: and then she leaves because she's become very uncomfortable. And there's a nice detail with her employer as well at this point because she sees her leave and she goes towards her and she says, ah, oh, don't leave. But she doesn't put too much in it either. Uh, she's just kind of casually saying, uh, don't go. And then she yeah. turns
1: around and goes, has fun anyway. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I like that detail. It's, yeah. It has some nuance to it. The yeah,
1: same way, I really like that. It does have nuance to it. And it's just kind of comedic. There's There are some, like, comedic elements. Yeah, it's very really, funny, the film at times. Uh, it, it is. And I think especially the whole travel agency just reminds yeah. me of, like, it's sort of off-ish-ish and it's sort of uh, also a bit like, uh, did you watch the, the Fargo series? I did, yeah. Yeah, the first season there with the travel agency there. Yeah. It reminds me of that, too. It's <laughs> sort of sort of a relic from the past, Mm. like nobody really goes to travel agencies that much these days. Mm -hmm. Like So it's sort of this ancient office milieu that's just, I don't know, it's funny. It's funny.
0: Yeah. There's there's an interesting detail actually with the two different workplaces, uh, like Prestige job in the beginning and the the other workplace, because they both have a lot of posters on their wall. And in her original job, they're kind of really nice posters, and they've got her name on them, showing off her like great stuff she's done. And then in the new workplace, they're just super generic posters. Yeah. With, uh, Visit
1: Spain. Uh, yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I like that dynamic. There, there's a lot of those subtle things.
1: Uh, and I also think the, the the whole her whole adventure persona is sort yeah. of like a bit douchebaggish. Mm-hmm. Like, how many people do you do you know that call themselves adventurers that are sort of nice people? <laughs> well, I don't know anyone who calls himself an adventurer. No, like, I've met a few people that, like, they travel a lot and yeah. maybe they, like, they view themselves as quite important. Like, okay. the whole, you know, vice, right? Like, vice yeah, journalists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, are, yeah. I, I often feel like they're, I'm an adventurer. Okay. I go to war zones to okay, make these what you're saying, yeah. uh, hip and cool mm. um, interviews and documentaries. Like, And they always seem like a bit of, like, kind of douchebags. <laughs> I do, till this one doesn't seem like the most... Warm person, like no. she does seem like a bit yeah, affected.
0: But talking about the humor, there's one scene in particular that's so funny. This is still when Kevin's a young boy. And she's at home with him, and then um, uh, she sees out the window, and these two like these two guys in suits yeah. come to the door and, and ring the bell. And she she sees them out the window, and she's kind of worried because they look like is it FBI or something. And um, she opens the door, and they start this Jehovah Witnesses thing. And she's so relieved and they say like, um, do you know what's going to happen to you, to your afterlife? And she just says, uh, oh, yes, I do. I'm going to hell. Thank
1: you. Bye bye. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. There are some great comedic bits in this yeah.
0: movie. Yeah. It's really nice timing to that.
1: Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff you really don't get in Elephant. Like there's no funny bits. Mm. It's just dreary and boring. Mm. Uh, and
0: Kevin, too, also, the, as the character, is at times quite funny and sharp. Yeah, yeah. They have a, like a similar kind of sharp-witted sense to them.
1: And there's just great interplay between the actors. Mm. It's just a great ensemble of, of actors really playing well off each other. Yeah.
0: Another thing that actually works really well in this, which I think often filmmakers struggle with, is the casting of the different versions of Kevin well, you can see it's not the same person. They have enough similar traits. They have this feels, sort of energy. It just feels uh, it works. Yeah, it
1: really works.
0: Yeah, it's that's well casted. I think.
1: Yeah, that's very difficult to cast, especially if you have a child actress. Like that's yeah. just such a well-known problem and a headache for directors to to make that work mm. because children are hard to direct, right? Well, and it's also difficult to find actors that look like. Like, if you're trying to find younger versions mm. of, of actors. This, One show that did uh, that so well uh, is Dark the German uh, time travel show. Yeah. On Netflix. That's a show where the casting is just so good. I've never mm. seen anything like it. The younger versions, like they literally look like younger versions of themselves, but they are different actors. Uh, nice. And not only that, but they're also both great actors. Like, mm. when you have the different, eight, like, it's so well done
0: together. Yeah, because, like, the reverse example would be, like, it's I like the movie, but... It's not her best, but Andrea Arnold's Wuthering Heights, which is kind of like this moist, swampy version. uh, It's really beautiful. But the casting of the actors in different age groups, it doesn't work. It comes off as wrong. And they're not as good actors in the... I mean, it's a while since I saw it, but I remember that as a sticking point for me. Yeah, um, I
1: I mean, the only solution is to go the Irishman route and just de-age them (laughs) digitally (laughs) because that looks so beautiful. Or not. I'm, I'm joking, of course. Yeah. That looks...
0: I mean, in some films it works. Some uh, A lot of times it doesn't, usually.
1: The aging did I, I think often it's like, a, I don't know, not a lazy way because it's probably super difficult, but I don't know. It just looks weird. And, and why not just find a good actor instead? Hmm. I think good casting is better than spending a uh, hundred million dollars on on CGI to de-age Robert De Niro.
0: Oh, actually, <laughs> if I were to nitpick... Please well, do, please uh, nip it. <laughs> two small details that are completely off to me. They're not a big deal. It's subtle. Number one <laughs> is, it's the worst one. Uh, at some point, Ava goes into her son's room. He's, he's out and she looks through her stuff and she finds like a CD that says, I love you. Oh yeah. Oh, and, and, she, and she takes it and she puts it in a machine and it's a, it's a virus, uh, that's perfectly fine. But the way they present the virus, yeah, is such a
1: so, 90s movie. It's like from hackers. Yeah, it's yeah, so stupid. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like these it's graphics like, on the screen. It's like this baby boomer idea of what a <laughs> virus, computer yeah, yeah, virus yeah. is.
0: Or like the idea of how do you make uh, something digital
1: uh, cinematic? Yeah.
0: It's uh, so really... this
1: digital clown. Ha ha, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> and lots of porn flashing. Yeah, it's yeah, just... Yeah. It's yeah. so over the top and stupid, especially for a movie like this. Yeah. It feels just so ham-fisted.
0: Yeah, it, it just seems like someone who doesn't know what a computer is yeah.
1: completely. I hate that. That's such uh, a pet peeve of mine when, yeah. when you have like, uh, instead of real uh, computer programs, mm. of course, it's often because of copyright stuff or, or whatever. Because of licensing, you can't show Google. And so it's like, search.net mm. <laughs> or whatever. That's one thing, but also, especially hacking and stuff. Mm. I'm entering the mainframe and you have this... Like it's it's, well, always if it's
0: super stylized, it's okay. And I think that I think that the montage they made is nice, but it just feels off it's like if it was a parody movie or if it was like a more like jokey film in over some the sense. top. Like
1: if it was hackers, it yeah. would be cool because yeah. that's a that that super over the top, you know, really yeah. campy movie. And so that works in that setting. Of course, it's a kind of terrible movie, but mm. It works still. Yeah, it, and Harry it just, just feels, doesn't... Like, it's totally, completely yeah, wrong. It's this totally movie. off.
0: It just feels like, probably, I don't know, Lynn Ramsey, but maybe she's not a computer person. I would have been really surprised if one of my contemporaries would have gone for that sort of choice right. in this sort of movie.
1: I um, think it, like, that scene sort of... It's totally a bit, to me, like like the the date scene where he, he goes on this, like, brilliant uh, really genius rant. Mm. It feels very movie-ish, mm. You know, like you've seen it a million times before and that's, I don't like that. Yeah, I get what you're saying.
0: It's something you might see in um, not top quality TV series where they're trying to psychologize a character or something. Right,
1: they're trying to sort of punch above their weight class in terms of being intellectual and it it falls a bit flat. What was the other thing you wanted to pick?
0: Yeah, my second pet peeve, it's it's similar, uh, it's smaller in scale. It's actually a sound design issue because you have this scene where Ava comes home And Franklin, the father, and uh, Kevin are playing a console game. They have these uh, Nintendo (laughs) 64 sticks and they're playing. Um. And the sound design there is like it's an arcade game sound. the way they're playing too? Yeah. It just doesn't sound at all like a console game playing would sound. And it's, I mean... The sounds are nice, they're nicely made, but they just don't fit what they're doing. It
1: feels incredibly fake.
0: Yeah, yeah. It feels off. And then like, again, I feel it's a question of, like, she probably doesn't play games, so she doesn't know what they sound like. Right. So some gamey sounds, general gamey sounds, they will do fine.
1: Again, it's it's like, a, it's like a baby boomer conception of what a video game console is. I think you can't really fool millennials and Gen Zers with that shit. No, <laughs> it no, doesn't fly. No. Like, it, you see through it right away.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not a big deal, but... I did uh, notice it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I didn't notice it too, but I like it wasn't important. No, no, no. To me no. no. Like, it's not vital. It's a, just a bit annoying. Yeah. And you can see it in a lot of, th- in a lot of stuff too. Yeah. Like, it's always like console games, and it, it just doesn't look like they're playing at all.
0: Actually, there's another element that I wanted to talk about, which is, I really like, because um, one of the scenes they go back to a lot is um, Ava and Franklin uh, younger in a date situation. And they're kind of making out and on the streets and stuff. It's dark and it's sort of... uh, flashing red lights and stuff. And often intercut with um, a clock, like a digital clock, a timer, and it's about midnight, more or less. And it goes back and forth several times in the film. And they have sex. Now, it's not explicitly said, but it's implied that this is like the uh, conception of Kevin, where he was born. And it's kind of bathed in this red... Light, this demon light, it's almost as if there's some guilt. And the the standing in the suit in these vans that look almost like SWAT cars, but they're UPS. And it's kind of loaded with like aggressive imagery, as if this is the, it's at midnight, it's the demon night, it's like as if it was a full moon and everything. And uh, here he's created this demon child.
1: uh, Yeah, it's very, it's sort of pregnant with symbolism and also pregnancy. Yeah, I know what you mean. I kind of like it, though. Yeah, I do
0: like it, yeah. It's nice. Mm. And I like that it's implied more than it said. It could easily see the film and not think about that at all, I think.
1: Uh, yeah, I could see it as just uh, showing their relationship before, right? Mm. And how it's sort of falling apart now. Yeah, yeah I, but- I like it. I, I do like that it, it has so, so many levels of time mm. and so many different sort of short scenes that it sort of flips back and forth between. I really like that about this movie. And it's done very well. Often I think that can feel extremely disjointed in a sort of uncomfortable Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of a way that makes the movie feel just like non-coherent. But this movie feels incredibly coherent in spite of the extremely disjointed nature of the cutting of the scenes.
0: Mm. And this scene is also one of the examples of use of red, which is a thematic color that goes around. Like you start off with a tomato festival and you have a scene with Tilda Swinton at the shopping mall where she sees one of the mothers and she's hiding between one of the rows and there's all these tomato boxes behind her.
1: Very like a striking image. It's a beautiful shot, so many beautiful shots, but it's also like sort of a symbolic. Or you, you can read symbolism into it, but it's also just beautiful and, and mm. sort of poetic and rhymes with the different yeah. times it's shown. And I like that about the sort of applicability of the different themes, like the mm. visual themes running throughout the movie, you can use them if you want to, and they enrich the movie, but they, you don't have to read too much into it either. It yeah. can just be like a nice touch.
0: I've, I feel like it's more to do with, let's say, repeated imagery and association rather than symbols, like this means that. Again, it, so feels,
1: it feels very musical, sort mm. of jazzy almost. It mm. has a really good beat and a, mm. like a good flow, and just this visual cool this yeah. aesthetic it's very it's great i
0: really like this movie Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: and uh all the films really i like
1: <laughs> and Worth
0: just checking out if you haven't seen them
1: yeah totally and just the cast to mm. like john c Riley and Ezra yeah. miller and tilda yeah. swinton of course they're all wonderful in mm. their own way and, and the soundtrack johnny greenwood is amazing mm. like it's really it's good shit
0: ramsey's one of these directors she's She's very stylish, but she's also very good um, Good with actors. Like
1: so. often, I feel like stylish directors often, like that comes with a cost of maybe not being able to. Like often you have a drawbacks in other areas, right? Yeah, but yeah, she's yeah, like, just all around incredibly competent and, mm. and like well, yeah. It's just well-rounded director. You know, she was, um, her background was actually originally
0: from... Um, I think she went to art school and then got into photography. She started out painting, I think. And then from there on, she decided to study uh, cinematography at film school. Uh, So she started out there... And then did some projects uh, and then got into directing. And um, you can really feel like there's a technical competence
1: to her. She knows all the cinematic. You do feel the competence on all levels. You're in really good hands.
0: Yeah, like sound design sure. and use of camera. It's all really the editing. It's such, yeah. it intertwined so naturally.
1: Right, right. And I find it interesting that it's written with her husband
0: like. yeah 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 I, I think this is the only uh, well he he was involved in the essay film swimmer but i think this is the only feature film that they were collaborated on and it seems to work very really well
1: <laughs> that's interesting because this movie has yeah. like a uh, really failing marriage yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a family movie <laughs> yeah it's got to be pretty intense to work on that shit mm. well there's a married couple but... bam
0: Oh Svare. Do you have any nice and unpleasant recommendations for us?
1: Well, Thomas, I do. <laughs> and it's, it's it's a pretty simple recommendation this time. Yeah. This is another podcast. Oh yeah. And it's incredibly unpleasant. And the subject matter is just horrible. It's called Hunting Warhead. And it's a collaborative effort between a Canadian journalist, I believe, and a Norwegian journalist and mm. a Norwegian sort of uh, computer expert of sorts. And it deals with basically the sort of research and unraveling of one of the biggest sort of underground child child abuse sites uh, on the dark web. Oh, and okay. the sort of... Um, the sort of uh, detective work, and the sort of, uh, and also through law law enforcement and stuff, and all around the world, this effort to sort of bring this shit to light. And to so there is a specific it. site. There's a specific site, and indeed, it's a specific person. Eventually, they're trying to target oh. uh, who runs this site, and it's incredibly well done, like journalistic. I mean, it's it's a great journalistic podcast, like investigative. Uh, the investigative work is really cool and it's done like from multiple different people like there's so much good effort being done but but is this is this a historical thing is this a a case that's finished this is a case that's finished yes so we know the outcome sort of but it's also incredibly interesting just discussing the wider ramifications of it like the whole culture of it um, and it's also very like like you want to know what happens next Mm, like uh, it's really good true crime but also it's incredibly horrible like it can be difficult to listen to for a lot of people, I think. Huh. Uh, but it's it's handled very tactfully still, and it's very well put together. Oh, and it's In short, it's six episodes or okay. something. Oh, that's uh, nice. So yeah, I really recommend you check that out. Warhead. Uh, Hunting Warhead. Hunting Warhead. Yeah. Sounds so very that's my interesting. Recommendation.
0: I will check that
1: out. So, do you have a recommendation,
0: Thomas? I do. Uh, actually, <laughs> since my last one wasn't so much a recommendation, I kind of have a, a cheeky double recommendation, uh, in a way. Okay. Um, the main recommendation is uh, it's a short story by George Saunders called Adams, and similar to Kevin, it's, uh, it's it's it has a very subjective point of view. It's a first person narrative about uh, a man who finds his neighbor in his kitchen standing only in his uh, underwear and he's facing his kid's room. And uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, I think the first sentence is something like, I never liked Adam's. And when he was standing in my kitchen in his underwear facing my kid's room, I lost it or something like that. So he knocks this guy down.
1: I got to say, that's, that's a very strong start. Yeah, it's a, it's a great start.
0: <laughs> he knocks this guy down and chases him out. And there's an escalation of events going on. And I'm not going to spoil it because it's so beautiful. But it has a lot to do with a suspicious frame of mind where you allow yourself to escalate events into unreasonable heights. Yeah. And it has a lot of nice touches. It's um, the language he uses for himself... When he says he knocks him down, he says, I wonked him in the head and he went down. And wonk is such of like a like, it's a childish, doesn't sound serious. Sounds silly. Yeah, it sounds very silly. But when he's talking about the other guy, uh, the language is very serious and very threatening. So it has a lot of nice uh, subtleties. Yeah, yeah, subtleties and nuances like that. Kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's A Telltale Heart. Yeah. Which also this first person narrative. Mm. The classic. Yeah, but n- not as, you know, gothic. But the double recommendation comes in because I discovered this short story through a podcast, which I'm really fond of. It's called The New Yorker Fiction, where the host, Deborah Treisman, invites an author to come and read a short story by another author that's published in The New Yorker. So in this case, it's Joshua Ferris reading George Saunders. And he reads the story and they have a conversation about it afterwards so they talk about the nuances and the elements and and this story is also an allegory and you can read it and like it without that element at all but it relates to let's say the iraq war in the way that kind of enriches the psychology of the characters and um, it's really nicely done and this podcast um, there's all sorts of different authors and they often have like a a personal connection to the story they pick out. So the conversation they have about the short story itself is also really interesting. Uh, So it's a great way to discover short stories and have a discussion about them at the same time. That's a very pleasant podcast, (laughs) unlike yours. (laughs) But Uh, a quite
1: unpleasant story in a pleasant podcast. The
0: story is, it's really fun and it's sharp, but the implications of it are very unpleasant. Yeah. And the way the narrative becomes very suspect as you go along.
1: Right. I like what you said about allegory because I think that's the, that's the best way to do allegory. Yeah. Like to not have it be the only way of looking at a story because that often becomes incredibly boring. Like, if it's uh, too
0: explicit, it becomes a bit boring I and mean, it only functions as an allegory. and it's, it's Yeah, it, it feels very
1: medieval. <laughs> like, uh, hi, I am truth. Yeah, this just yeah. Okay, your truth. That's the most boring character of all time. Oh. You know, so yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, so that's our recommendations for this time.
0: So that's the end of this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail or you can rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. You can also check out our list of unpleasant movies at movie.com Just search for unpleasant movies there, and you can see. Lots of films that we find unpleasant and interesting. Perhaps you have some recommendation to us you might want to send as well. And the music for Unpleasant Movies is made by Sverre Ogor and Yu Skarning in the band Umulium. So the next movie we'll be talking about is Trouble Every Day by Claire Denis. Which is a really good and interesting movie. I think you'll
1: enjoy it. Yes. Although it's, as far as I know, has been mixed quite, has uh, some mixed reviews.
0: Oh, We can talk about that
1: later. (laughs) That's often a sign of a a movie that's well worth talking about. (laughs) So I think that's it for this time and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.